Welcome to Backlog Dialogues, the podcast where we dig you out of your backlog before it buries you. I'm John, and joining me as always are the Elsmeralda and Phoebus, my Quasimodo. That's a real mouthful. You sure you don't want to use the gargoyles instead? Please, no. I got their names right no, here. Please, no! Alright, so I'm Jared. <laughs> and I'm Matt. So which they one of were... you is Esmeralda and which one of you is Phoebus? We always do this little thing where you two fight over it, and I'm curious which one you've decided on this time. Oh. Well, as someone who knows the books, I think they're all assholes in that, so I'm just not going to claim anything here. <laughs> oof. I'm not, I'm not, now, the movie version's different, but in the books, oof. <laughs> Disney seems to do a thing when they adapt stuff where all of the people who aren't the main bad guy get made more good and the they main s- bad guy gets worse. They sand all the edges off is probably the way you want to put it. Oh, this one, they sanded so much, they accidentally left, they left, found themselves a little nub and they had to make something new in its place. Oh, <laughs> there, was no. too much, there was too much edges to remove. Uh, so some <laughs> who, as again, uh, just to brag again, someone that she reads the books, it's just this one had a lot of edge that had to go. Yep, yep. <laughs> so today we're going to visit La Cité des Clochers. Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce that. that. Yeah, La Cité des Clochers. What a weird world name. Like, it's literally City of the Bells. Yes. I'm going to call it Hunchback World. Yeah, we can't call it Notre Dame because the Fighting Irish might come for us. Uh Sports. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Make a sports ball joke. We haven't had a new Disney World in a while, it feels like. Let's talk about Hunchback for a bit before we get into the Kingdom Hearts take on it. Well, sure. Then just let's go through the boilerplate. As expected, Hunchback of Notre Dame is based on the Victor Hugo novel, Lassiter de Notre, like the Notre, Notre Dame de Paris, because you know, the book was actually not about the Hunchback, despite the English name. Mm-hmm. It's a very, is it anyone who knows anything about Victor Hugo's work, such as Les Miserables, knows it's kind of a moderately grim, cynical story with a lot of asides about like architecture and city design and that. Aren't most of Victor Hugo's works tragedies and then they and a lot of people end up changing it to have a happy ending? Well, Les Mis end up mostly the same. That's because all I have to do is cut out 80 percent of the rambling and it's a relatively coherent story. But Mm. yeah, when this was made into a movie in 96, it was considered one of the darker Disney movies out there. I know it actually suffered its performance to some degree. Like it was lower, even though it was a success, it was lower than expected. There was questions, but compared to the dark, dismal book in which everyone's dead at the end, this is definitely a, a very cheerful uh, version. Probably the thing that is like most memorable about the movie to me is the songs. It is one of the best soundtracks in all of Disney. They did a a lot of work on the songs. I mean, I still remember the Bells of Notre Dame song, and they they put a lot of animation mojo into those those songs too. I mean, pretty much every song has some kind of iconic high budget animation thing, especially that aforementioned Notre Dame song with those big sweeping panning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, orbital panning shots of Quasimodo coming down the tower. Those were in all they the advertisements. Were, yeah. In this movie, I remember back as a kid, I was even reading in Disney Adventures. They were really excited about CGI crowd work this time around. Rather mm-hmm. than paying backdrops, they wanted moving crowds. They knew it would be almost impossible to do it any other way. And they just really got excited about we've made six models. We gave them 72 mo- movement animations. I mean, the song that I guess I should say songs that I always like point out as my favorite part of this movie is the duality between Heaven's Light and Hellfire. Like, it's probably the best instance Disney has had of switching between the main character's uh, I want song 
and going straight to the villain song and using them to sort of like be a dichotomy against each other. It's really good. Funny thing, funny thing is Heaven's Light is an I Want song. The I Want song is out there. True, true. Yeah. No, Heaven's Light is kind of a secondary one because it's a character reacting to something that just happened. So it's true. a expository song, which then leads into the villain's I Want song. Usually a villain gets an I Am song instead, but this is an I Want song. It's quite a... Quite a memorable one. <laughs> and well, let's not mince words. It's a song about how the villain wants to. Let's say conquer the the, uh, the character. Yeah. The, yeah. the female character. Yeah, that's that, I feel like that's the right word to use here. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're taking the legendary Tony J, one of the best bass voices I know of. And he's just getting to sing this song about how he's feeling tormented because of his he believed to be his purity being affected by his desires. It is a song that is all about what I've come to understand is more or less Catholic guilt, but also (laughs) just like not trying to like deny it. He's just like, how dare you do this to me, which makes him one of the most awful villains in all of Disney canon, I'd say. So I really got to say that Judge Frollo has to be probably my I, I can't say they're my favorite Disney villain, but they're they're one of the best realized. Yeah, they're the best realized. They are the most like villainous villain I can think of. I mean, they are pure moral evil that has convinced themselves that they are righteous. Mm-hmm. That's what they are. By the way, going right back in music, do you know what a DSERA is? Uh, yes, the uh, that sort of like Latin chant that you would get in a... Not just the chant, there's a specific progression. The best way to remember is think of the main chorus line of of, uh, of making Christmas from Nightmare Before Christmas, because that's the, the progression of Forno. And okay. this one is so completely in it. There's Dies Irae's during Frollo's, and, and literally it's being... There's a song called Paris Burning where the chorus is literally singing that. Day of Wrath. <laughs> it's a wonderfully distinct motif, and you hear it stuff all the damn time because it goes back to Gregorian chant. And so, like I said, said hunch, said you see it in Hunchback, you see it in Night Before Christmas. The Beetlejuice an- uh, musical literally uses the chant in it as well. It's everywhere. <laughs> well, it's like that uh, that thing with the uh, Canon and D chord progression. Once you know that chord progression, you hear it everywhere. <laughs> oh, I, I so many comedians have done good versions of that. <laughs> there are so many things I love about this movie, but there's one thing about it. That makes me go, oh, no, I can't call this my favorite Disney movie. Three things. <laughs> Three things. The fourth thing, if you want to talk about the unfortunate change of uh, terminology. Yeah, we'll, we'll get funny. to that. We'll get to we'll get that in a little bit. But like first, let's just talk about the three things that drag this movie down a whole lot. And that's that. Unfortunately, in the middle of the 90s, Disney couldn't trust a movie to be a movie and had to add mascots no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> and this time we get three really obnoxious talking gargoyles. <laughs> yeah. It, the, the sad thing is they, they imagine them as sculptures like they have no feet or legs. So they're just hopping around. There's just these hopping half statues. Mm-hmm. So they're not visually appealing. Named stupid puns are named Victor Hugo. And for some reason, Laverne. I still don't know how that one came in. Where's Shirley? <laughs> they only had three gargoyles. And also, where's Laverne Shirley have to do with uh, what's already this French novel? I have no idea. They drag the movie down an awful lot. And thankfully, they only have a very small bit role in this game. (laughs) Just enough to remind you that they exist. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but and but by the way, guys, pause. Pausing. I just want to say this is an amazing live on Wikipedia. This film is one of the darkest animated films due to its mature subject matter, such as infanticide, lust, damnation, anti-Zeganism, genocide and sin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to leave this pause in. 
That's fine, but you should move it back to where we talk about the darkness of it. No, I'm going to leave it right here, right now. All right. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, so we basically you have Alan Menke and Stephen Schwartz who doing the music, and honestly, they've come back from when they did Pocahontas, which has pretty good music and a dopey movie to what I'd say is a much stronger one here. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like they also gave the gargoyles a song. Yeah, the problem with Pocahontas was that. They were so convinced it was going to be the biggest movie they ever made. And then it was Lion King that was the big movie and no one gave a shit about Pocahontas. <laughs> Basically, unfortunately, Pocahontas weak reception and Hunchback kind of gave the confused reception for its darkness. This really started to be the blow against the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. But so, yeah, what does Kingdom Hearts have to do with Hunchback? How do we deal with the Bells of Xehanort Dom? <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I was so yeah, happy was... when I thought to say that. I was so happy when I got to write that down. And now that I've got to say it out loud on a podcast, all I have to say, I'm the happiest person alive right now. <laughs> all right. I'm going to look for my own Xehanort pun later and I'm going to get you back when you least <laughs> expect it. All right. Well, let's start with Sora's side because Sora always gets to go first. In this case, yes. Um, Sora shows up and immediately runs right into Judge Quadfrollo, as we've discussed before, one of the most despicable villains in all of Disney animated canon. Yeah, I was going to say, talking about Frollo, I just got to say that uh, uh, the voice actor for Frollo clearly in the movie had a ton of fun doing that. Oh, yeah. That that role. Oh. They they got yeah. to oh. it. Mm. Tony was- J, he is he was a legend and I am sorrowful that he's already gone because mm-hmm. They said, we, I know you said in the past you never really got into reboot, but he's the villain in that. He's just there's a there's a wonderful PS2 game uh, called Bard's Tale where he and K, he's the the narrator arguing with KCL, uh, Carrie Ellis the whole time. It's just <laughs> he is a he was a treasure. <laughs> but to go on, talk about Frollo. I already talked in the book how I kind of think the characters are all jerks. I, it's being a little reductive saying so. Quasimodo's kind of spineless, but also antisocial. Esmeralda is kind of written as a fool. Phoebus is a monster. But Frollo, who was the actually the priest of Notre Dame in the original book, is a lot more sympathetic than this version. He's a monster that does horrible things, but you get the feeling like he's literally someone going mad who can't handle it. Hmm. <laughs> so like his, his religion's repression... And his own issues, including like a wastrel of a brother that's not this appears in very few adaptations. Kind of just it's clearly driving him mad, and then he becomes attracted to this young woman he knows he shouldn't, and it just kind of breaks him. This version's just a, fl- a flat out he's a Pharisee from the Bible, basically. <laughs> a bastard who just thinks he's the most righteous person that can judge all others. Yeah. Yep. So Frollo asks Sora his name and Sora, who has never encountered a shitty religious person in his entire life, just cheerfully answers him. Never trust anyone in an important looking religious uniform. The higher the rank, the less you should trust them. Bishops and cardinals are right out. Yeah, I feel like the most religious person that Sora's met before now is Santa Claus. So, yeah, that's the thing. Like Sora's (laughs) only run in with any kind of religious figure up until now are the denizens of Halloween Town slash Christmas Town. But then that's how bring Sawin, so how religious is it? I mean, he also has hung out with Hercules. That's kind of a religious figure. Is it, though? <sighs> Hades, maybe? But it, let's just... Oh, okay. no. So are the, but, so are the friendly necromancer. We're already showing a bit of our bias being in a predominantly Christian nation talking about mythology versus religion. 
But this is one case where it kind of really matters, that dichotomy, because... Well, it's the first one where there's explicitly a sort of religious official, let's say. So that's kind of a different tone. Yeah, yeah. this is the first time Sora has encountered a distinctly religious-coded person in any of these Kingdom Hearts games. And yeah, so he well, doesn't know how to deal with it. He's just going to yeah. Sora his way through it. Yeah, I mean, by your theory, King Neptune's King Triton's about the same, but... Also, there's kind of a difference between meeting, you know, like the the god and then yeah. dealing with the worshippers. True. Ooh, That's also true. Ooh, shade, ooh, shades of Terry Pratchett now. Yes. I need to read Discworld. Yes, I do. Yeah, Frollo promptly calls Sora a slur for Romani people when Phoebus comes running up to see what's going on. All right, we probably should stop here and just yeah, talk okay. about it, I think. Yeah, let's talk about it. So we're just going to err on the side of not saying that particular slur when we're talking about this work, just because it's kind of cemented in public culture in many ways. But especially back then in the 90s, it really was just the word they were casually calling the Roma people. But yeah, it's definitely I feel like, well, I know it's not like 100 percent even like I read this supposedly not even within their community. They don't fully agree. I understand enough of offense stuff with that word, that word. I think it's just I'm comfortable not saying it. Yeah, basically, yeah. we're we're not qualified to have the debate. None of us are of Romani descent in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So we'll just play it on the safe side here and yeah, I, not yeah, I'm British it. and unspecified Eastern European. But that's all I know for sure. Yep. So take to play action. You, if anyone wants to complain about us, you know the door. You can go through it. Bye bye. <laughs> so Frollo's just like, I know what you are. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of people make all sorts of jokes about what what he could possibly mean Sora actually is. But clearly, considering that Frollo's current obsession is Romani people, there's he probably is trying to make some kind of anti-Zygonistic uh, reference here. I learned a new word. <laughs> so Sora just stares back blankly. Does he not notice that, that they're using uh, hostile terms? Or even if you don't accept the word as hostile, he's still I, kind of being incredibly aggressive against like, Sora? Or like, is Sora just kind of like it's he's like hearing white noise? I don't think Sora picks up on anything at all in that regard. Like, does Sora pick up? Like, Sora doesn't even pick up when, like, Riku's being mean to him. Like. Well, that's just Riku. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny, though, because Frollo definitely puts a lot of stank on that word whenever. He oh, does. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a different voice actor because I say he's already, Tony J has already died at this point, but you, whoever's doing it is still doing the bass voice. And he basically doesn't say anything that isn't either in a sneer or a contemptuous insult. So it's hard. Right. To <laughs> like, I think I think just Sora is already on such a uh, inherent good boy level that he's just not going to be like getting into anything, even if it seems a bit off to him. He's just gonna be like, no. Nope. Uh, ball of happiness rolling on through. Can I just say I learned something? Go ahead. Apparently, Tony J saw in Frollo. He kind of saw him. He he would be was mentally comparing the role he was voicing to Hannibal Lecter. Oh wow! Yeah, that really tells you something. I love to talk about Frollo. He's one of the he with all our jokes about Scar the Super Heartless. Frollo is one of the nastiest villains Disney ever animated. Oh yeah, it really is. <laughs> While they sanded off all the edges of all the other characters, what they did with this one is they just like went all in on making him the most hateful, religious hypocrite. That's why I went with yeah. Pharisee as someone with yeah, yeah. who read that stuff as a kid. So <laughs> yeah, he's, he, they just made him like as contemptible as they could. There's one line that feels especially uncomfortable nowadays where Phoebus says, but sir, he's just a boy. And Frollo goes, Captain, I will be the judge of that. 
And oh no, I don't want to leave Sora with a Catholic religious jerk. I don't about know about you all. <laughs> I will say that the only time that Frollo is not saying something with that kind of you know sneering contempt is when he's trying to manipulate Quasimodo, especially in well, this particular. He takes on a different kind of abusive tone when he does that. He switches to this this condescending. He's still kind of drawing out his lines with this with a sonorous smugness, but he's but he's definitely couching it different. He, you can still just hear the superiority in his mind in every word. Oh mm. yeah, I mean uh, Frollo definitely sees his relationship with Quasimodo as essentially doing the best and most noble thing anyone could ever do for him. Yeah. Which is, you know, not just kill him as an infant as he almost did. Yep. Instead, like, anyways, he's going to raise, this... raise them as a kid by keeping him locked up and not letting anyone see him. Although apparently it's been only successful enough that there's still open rumors about the uh, bell ringer. But, yeah. well, this this has gotten uncomfortable. So monsters in the square. Yeah. Even though we were just talking to one, it's that um, Sora's cue to whip out his keyblade and go into action. That just sounds wrong. <laughs> Uh, what would you prefer? I say, what would you prefer? I say, let's let's dig into that for a second here. <laughs> what would you prefer? I say, rather than whip out his keyblade and go to action. <laughs> let's draw his keyblade. How's that? OK, that's fair. So Phoebus goes off to follow Sora while darkness grows in Frollo's hand as he complains about the city being overrun by slurs for Romani people like. I, I I would normally say a character doing the dark aura things going from zero to 11 instantly, but this is pro. He went from about a nine to a 10. Yeah, like it's not that big of a stretch to assume that in a Kingdom Hearts story, Frollo is just going to be radiating darkness at every available moment. Yeah, a bigot who clearly is openly contemplating genocide at all times. Yeah. 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 There's no way he's not constantly covered in the stench of darkness. When, I've been amazed when Riku needs to be to put on a clothespin, but I guess it's just part of the denial. <laughs> Maybe that's me. <laughs> so far, <laughs> uh, I, ha- I have I have been failing to do my anti-darkness showers recently. <laughs> so Sora gets to square and Quasimodo is throwing a party with some dream eaters. It's great. He's riding a big old elephant, just celebrating. Yeah. Like, uh, and Quasi claims to be the king of fools. Like, who voted for him? The elephant he's writing? <laughs> oh, an elephant never forgets to vote on election day. Is this supposed to be the festival of fools that he originally alluded to earlier? Uh, yep. We completely, we completely missed the song Topsy Turvy, so. Mm. Yeah, unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, apparently this version involved elephants and other dream eaters, so we just had a chunk of plot happen off screen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A bunch of Hunchback Cop happened off screen. Like dream eaters have just been thrown in to replace the elements of the story people. that we're not going to be he- here to see. <laughs> like other people besides the three characters. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yep. Ah, Kingdom Hearts with your terrifying empty worlds. Don't worry, that'll be fixed the next game. In a, uh, in the back cover? Uh. No, in three. Well, now you're skipping games, Sean. <laughs> that covers a that, movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Uh, and all, but we no, are. Let's see, oh, that's the other one. Uh, the Fragmentary Passage. One. Fragmentary Passage. There's there are it. very good reasons why there's only two characters in Fragmentary Passage. We'll get to that. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, Frollo shows up. Which he starts yelling at Quasimodo, but you then Quasimodo openly panicking. The Dream Eaters seem to get infected and just go wild. Yep, Sora needs to fight them just because we, 
like it, it's about the same as last game where we would get into unverse fights all the time. But it doesn't feel as weird here. I don't know why. Dream Eaters just seem to naturally exist in the world as opposed to Unverse, which just pop up whenever they felt like it from somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, Dream Eaters don't burst into random cutscenes because they're annoyed that the cutscenes are going too long. Dream Eaters just kind of like are a natural We're, part of all these sleeping worlds. Like we've been ignoring, we've been ignoring the polar bears for, for the giant pandas for the last minute, but now they're too close. Yep. Well, it's, it's dream yeah. logic. You don't notice yeah. things that aren't important to the dream until they actually start interacting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Quasi's upset, but Esmeralda shows up and she just pops up out of nowhere. We haven't seen her before, and she's leading Quasimo into the cathedral to hide. Yep. Frollo promptly calls her a slur for a mighty people witch. And like the dialogue here seems to suggest that Sora heard this, since his next line is, Okay, now you've got my attention in aggressive tone. Now he's facing the dream meters, like he's saying, I can fight you now, my friends, but it really is tied with the what did that asshole say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's murder Quasimodo's new animal friends. <laughs> yeah, um, that's OK. I don't think he remembers he's playing. He never mentions that he was playing with animals again for the rest of the uh, stage. So it's not so bad. He doesn't interact with Sora much either. Does he say anything directly to Sora until? Well, no, yes. One point when they're going to the sewers. Yeah, they but like I feel like Quasi and Sora have some of the least interaction of any of the characters. Like, I get, I think it's at the end of the story, really, that Sora has the most interaction with Quasi. I think Riku talks to Quasimodo a lot more, if I remember correctly. Maybe. We'll have to see. All right. So it's time to go into the cathedral's nave. Yeah, it's a pretty sizable flow motion playground, and it makes good use of the reality shifting area called Faith. I you didn't know the word nave before this. <laughs> you didn't? Yeah, I thought it's not one I could remember. I'm not religious at all, and I knew the word nave. And that much for architecture. Ah, and but you're the one who's read Victor Hugo. Yeah, but this is also first something I've read like two decades ago. While I remember it, I don't remember how much he'd used for his vocabulary. Words like that I would have read and just kind of glossed over mentally and not and would have understood the context. But I wouldn't have like committed the word to memory as quickly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I read yeah. <laughs> The reality shift of the area is rail grinding on lasers, and you can also turn enemies into more rail grind points. It's uh, like unlike the last one. This one is just kind of like really fun. It's rail grinding in space. It's Sonic just kind of weird, though, because it's kind of weird, though, because it's really hard to hit things from it. So you can just kind of be flying around doing nothing. Yep. And also, unfortunately, like even though this room is big, like unless you're going for completion, you don't need to do anything in this room. Yeah, you go there's like this room is set. There's this long hallway. There's an altar. There's big balconies up there. Turn left the opening door and there's a stairway upstairs. And that's all you need to do. Yep. <laughs> like, it, I mean, it's a fun room. There's a lot of treasure chests hidden in there. Riku gets to go, do something uh, on his side of the story in there. That's a, a bit of an optional content. But uh, if you're just trying to follow the story, just go left. Yeah, it's kind of a goofy game design choice that made a really superfluous area. Like when we were talking about flow motion, having some weird feeling decisions, I think this is one of the really distinct ones. Where they make these big playgrounds that like uh, have weird exit points. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we're going to go to the bell tower now because there's nothing else happening down here. Yep. We get a cute scene of Quasi showing Esmeralda the bells of Notre Dame. Like talking about how he named them, because that sounds like healthy behavior. Mm hmm. Yep, and since Quasi seems fine, the furniture starts talking to Sora, rather the gargoyles. Sora just responds, but then it does a does a good old fashioned cartoon double take after after responding to them. Like this is the weirdest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your fr- best friend is a is a duck. 
and a dog. Come on. It's the, the, the uh, Cheshire cat, the, the cricket that, that hides in your pockets. What other crazy shit has he seen that's crazier than these talking gargoyles? He's been a lion. He's been in the computer. No. He's been in the computer. He fl- he's flown under his own power. He's been to the literal end of all worlds. <laughs> and then to a literal theoretical, then like to imaginary world to, to, uh, to match up against it. He has fought things that like defy all sense of comprehension in the no baddies. So, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Gargoyles. Talking gargoyles. Where does he's ever well, seen in his life? <laughs> well, maybe it sense you're so unnecessary. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Sower has. You don't Sower belong has, in this story. <laughs> Sower has a certain. Sower is naive, but he has a certain amount of plot sensing power, and this is this is sticking out. Yeah, like he knows that these don't belong here because they are completely superfluous. I okay, that's when he had canon. That's why they're the weirdest thing he's ever seen is because he knows what's supposed to be in the world just instinctually. <laughs> yeah, even Stitch being there made more. Even Stitch showing yeah. up made more sense to him. Stitch showing up outside of his own world, totally fine. This, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, I know how that marketing works. <laughs> you guys are totally inconsistent. Are you actually real, or is he imagining you? You know, it's really unclear until the final act <laughs> when we throw that out the window and start and start assaulting people. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that it, it is, in fact, quite unclear whether they're all in Quasimodo's head until they actually start, like, doing things that matter to the plot. Yeah. Like, like, well, it, the thing is, when you say matter to plot in a movie, just in the last scene, there's a big slapsticky fight and they start doing bullshit, like, like uh, shooting uh, bolts at people. I would I would actually say that their inclusion in the movie would be totally fine if they did not do anything in that final act, because then you could have that interpretation that they're just sort of Quasi's imaginary friends. Because in fact, the, the the big song where they have, where they're cheering him up with all sorts of props and stuff. When their character comes in, we see him standing around with unmoving statues, a whole bunch of things just pulled out. It really feels like they're implying that he's yeah. kind of gone. He's kind of gone mad with isolation. This is his coping. But then they say, fuck it. We, 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 we like the genie so much. Let's have some slapstick. Yep. So Sora just talks with the gargoyles a bit, and honestly, for all our joking about him freaking out, he he he's he stops caring very quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, okay, sure, why not? Yep. Yeah, like, uh, and a huge chunk of the plot has happened again because she's now Esmeralda is now being hunted by the guards and is claimed to be under sanctuary. Like, yes, because we ignored all the part where she got like pulled inside, protected. I mean, yeah, in the in the in the book, it's really bad because the book she's wanted for murder. So, oh dear, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so oh, to go into that part of the plot goes into some pretty heavy topics. So I'm going to leave the rest out. But yeah, yeah, basically, most of the conflicts have happened at this point. <laughs> yep, yeah, and so Quasi jumps out to take her through the city in her arms, and I just want to say. This is this animation that happens right here is really awkward looking like it's just it's so janky and weird from a long shot. We see them jump out of the uh, the window. We see him sort of grab a ledge or something. It looks like he's a frozen model being rotated on an axis <laughs> as he pivots around the edge and his head gets flung to the side. There's very little motion in them and they're moving very fast. Like they're being dragged by a mouse. Yeah, if they were trying to emulate a you know, like a big budget scene from the movie, but oh, yeah, didn't work out. They like I feel like it might have been like temp animation that they didn't get around to, like actually going in and fixing even for the HD release. 
Honestly, it might just be that was the best they could do for or the best they wanted to put into a quick shot, yeah. like a quick yeah. transitional shot. Like there's later be- they do a much bigger, more impressive one. And it works a lot better, even though it's oh, yeah. limited by the uh, thing. So honestly, this might have been just picking and choosing their battles. Yep. yep. The gargoyles tell Sora about how Quasi spends all his time in the bell tower and Sora decides that Quasi can't let his heart be a prison, which feels like arc words. <laughs> yes. Or at least some kind of character development from Sora. So. Yep. So we get a bit of a flashback of Frollo abusing Quasimodo in that very yeah. kind of condescending way. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it's, it's all it's all about kind of, you know, instilling in Quasimodo this fear of the outside world mm-hmm. where, you know, the world is is terrible and people will be extremely mean to you. And the only place yeah. you'll ever be safe is here in the, the in the cathedral. This is literally just a sung bit in the movie. We just had Spoka here. It's like, you are deformed and ugly and the world is cruel. So, but I just want to say, like, while I like them using flashbacks as a way to, like, have Yensid de- deliver exposition at appropriate times rather than front-loaded all at once, I kind of find it really awkward how they decide to bring in these flashbacks just showing us uh, scenes from the movie, more or less. Yeah. It's kind of bad. You're like, Sora, how do you know the parts you weren't there for? Uh, I got a flashback. It ended up in my inventory in my pocket. Hmm. Flashback is tangible. What what do you think? Excellent. Dreams are weird. Yes. (laughs) That's probably what it is, is because it is a dream. Sora is able to get these flashbacks just by thinking about what. Oh, I wonder what that's about. I don't ever remember having a dream with cutscenes in it, though. I mean, why would you why would it be anything else in this world, though? Kingdom Hearts is a video game with cutscenes, so. You have cutscenes within cutscenes, but that are flashbacks. It's bullshit. Kazi's well, uh, ditched out the town, so Sora has to go find him again. Yep, yep. Like uh, we, back in the square, we find Phoebus. He's in the middle of laundry day right now. Like, he's, yeah, he's dropped his armor. He's wearing a a, a knit tunic. Yep. Uh, Sora find is now. For, we find out that Frollo fired him, basically. Yeah. More or less. Um, yeah, he, like Sora's a bit distrustful. Phoebus is uh, pretty chill, though. Like he's just tells Sora that Frollo has started emitting a strange odor and uh, just got a lot of darkness and got f- fired him from the guard. His mind's in a dark place. <laughs> Specifically, he objected to the genocide of the Court of Miracles, which I mean. Hey, good. Good on you, buddy. You are actually saying no. <laughs> so, yeah, just following orders is not OK. So glad you at least know that much. Yep. Oh, was that too dark? <laughs> no. You are what you pretend right. to be, so be careful what you pretend to be. Yep. Yeah. Well, luckily, this draws Quasimodo, who I guess isn't deaf like in the books because he could hear us talking. He has a pendant. It has a map. It's kind of it's kind of a, a not unclever little thing in that it's like fit, covered with woven lines on it. Yeah. Which basically make a, a very carefully made street map. Yeah. And like I have in my notes, boy, this makes more sense than the time the same Mac MacGuffin trip was used in Rise of Skywalker. Not sure why I brought up Rise of Skywalker. Other than that, Mac mode Guffin trick was fucking stupid. Also, the whole thing with wiping C-3PO's mind. Yeah, there's so much stuff in Rise of Skywalker that's just dumb. I don't like it. (laughs) So Quasimodo is a protag and Sora is along for the ride. So we follow him to the next plot point. Yep. Uh, It's a lot. Sora is very passive in his dreams. Yeah, Uh, it's a long trek through Paris to the catacombs. Uh, We got to go through the streets of Paris. We got to go through several graveyards until we finally make it to the Court of Miracles, where ominously cheery music plays. Sora is definitely totally innocent. Which is the worst crime of all. So, so he's, he's going, going to hang. hang. 
We have a method for assassin and shooters rather like Hornets protecting their hives. It's an interesting song. <laughs> it is an interesting yeah. song. Yep. The Court of Miracles itself is a fun little flow motion playground. There's lots of tramplings and speedy bars, but there's not really what? many enemies, so it doesn't matter. It's also it's empty like everything else, which still makes it a really weird feeling. We're here to save people from from basically a massacre. It just feels like they've already left. Yep. Yeah, it's and because this is supposed to be essentially where all of the the Romani people in the city are kind of hiding out as their yeah. of operations. Right. So, yep. Uh, and all we have here is Esmeralda standing in the middle because we can't afford any more models. And of course, because we are JRPG protagonists, we've totally led the villain here. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, that's the way it always works. Frollo summons some nightmares as he walks in, too, because, of course, in in a Kingdom Hearts version of this, Frollo is definitely going to be explicitly in, able to summon and control various darkness monsters. Of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a completely black heart, but he thinks that he's pure. And I feel like that ignorance and self-delusion would be incredibly dangerous because it would keep him out of the darkness if, as long as he's confident. Oh, yeah. Like he like, might be consumed uh, by it easily, but he can control it. Yeah. And as we've seen, like, that is a very powerful force in this world. Um, like, assuming he is, was not actually just this uh, guy in a sleeping world, which means he's, I would assume, means that he can't really do anything to the outside worlds. Like, if he was actually able to have an impact on the outside world, how di- what would his danger level be, would you say? So, like, I kind of feel like... If the right force got a hold of him, he could actually be a danger level outside of his own world. But oh, yeah. within his own world, he's a very high danger level as far as the world goes. Was the world already asleep when Maleficent was forming her very stupid council of villains in Kingdom Hearts 1? She probably just, well, the obvious answer here is she probably wouldn't want to deal uh, what oof, a evil fae and witch probably wouldn't want to deal with a guy like this. Good point. <laughs> She'd have to disguise herself pretty well. Yeah, yeah, like which oh, okay. not really something no, she could not no, really something she could no. do. No, you know what probably happened? Maleficent probably showed up. Uh, Frollo uh, had the sword like, and took a swing at her. Yeah, Frollo's just like Frollo gets aggro, like is like she's like you're powerful, but I don't want to work with you. I'm just going to destroy your world, and so that is why the Satanist closest is asleep now, is because Maleficent's just like nope, you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet, I bet deal with this shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I, that's the only thing except, that makes sense except to me. For, except for her weakness for trick-or-treaters, she's been pretty good. She's been not bad with a lot of her uh, hiring choices. Yeah. I feel like the team in KH1 was a lot of a uh, necessity for those who would work, but... Yeah, I mean, she was putting together a villain team. So I would assume that she would come here and find, oh, you're too bad. You don't, yeah. you would not work well with us, especially because I have the literal devil on my side, too. <laughs> <laughs> The, the irony, devil, the irony, if I could trick you, would be would be kind of awesome, but <laughs> it would probably be a little bit too risky. Let's move on. That's not to mention not to mention the pagan spirit in the form of a bag full of bugs. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pirate, pirate. Honestly, probably when you get along best with the pirates. Yeah. They, they, no, it's worse. There's two witches on their team. And yeah. they, I don't I hate to say it. Someone from an Arabic country. So. For Frollo's time period. Mm. Yeah, there's no there's absolutely no reason Frollo should be allowed yeah. to join that group of villains. <laughs> Maybe he would have gotten along with Hook. And that's really that's the only choice that may have worked. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad we had this discussion. This was good <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uncomfortable. Wonderfully uncomfortable. Yep. 
So, yeah, Frollo walks around leering at Esmeralda, then he just grabs her arms and legs and drags her off to the bonfire. So Sora, Sora loses consciousness for plot reasons. Because of darkness. Yep. Weirdly uh, enough, he doesn't dive to Riku there, but. Nope. Uh, so, I mean, you could dive to Riku here if you wanted, but we're not going to yet. Uh, Sora heads to the square where he finds a lit bonfire that Frollo yep. has set up to put Esmeralda in. And, and once again, there's no mob. It's empty. I'm never going to stop harping on this because this game just keeps me thinking how they had big CGI crowds. And they just good. It's for the game. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Quasi swing sound to save Esmeralda climbs the cathedral and claims sanctuary. And like, oh, that's why that climbing animation earlier was bad. They put all the I mean, effort yeah. here, which is good yeah, I mean, because like you should he, put the effort he, here. He jumps out with the rope trailing behind him. He he wall runs along a along a, a building behind with the rope as tall. It's very it's it definitely got that very action feel to it. Mm-hmm. And then the one of the nightmares that Frollo had summoned, the wargoyle, falls down from above. But I will say it's weird because there's absolutely no music playing. There's almost no music playing for this, and that was a very dramatic arc sound. So mm-hmm. and now we have a boss fight time. Yep. Yeah, I have in my notes. Well, this is some bullshit. So like the square is this big open arena and the guy's attacks are really strong and fast. And it's kind of like another Souls of Sposh fight on critical mode. So I won by relying on my imaginary friends. I use solo link moves to just like grind away at his health uh, a whole lot all at once. Um, Like and this is where where I'm going to say, like they dual link moves are really flashy for Sora, but they are not that good. Like. I think at the, the point I had, the one I had available was Meteor or Comet or something like that. And it does not do nearly as much damage as just taking your little fire snake and turning it into a wheel and rolling it into the boss. Partly because you're invincible the entire time you use it. Uh, single link moves are very good. That's my rant about this fight. Let's talk about other things in it. By the way, have you guys watched the Sanctuary clip from the movie? It really is one of the most awesome bits of that. Nice. Oh, yeah. It's, it's been a long time, good. but yes. It literally starts with Quasimodo doing a Samson and ripping himself free of uh, of uh, chains on pillars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to point out that the music in this boss fight is really good, too. Like, oh, yeah. um, like something that's going to be pretty consistent in this game is that it has unique boss themes for each world. And they're almost all bangers. It's really good. This fight is called <laughs> the boss fight for this theme is Majestic Wings, but he's not flying. What's up with that? Mm. <sighs> so he's got so he's so he's going with broken wings then. God damn it. <laughs> How long did you thought about that song, John? No, I'm not doing <laughs> that. That wasn't the one I was thinking of. But I was thinking of with Broken Wings. What was yours? Uh, I was thinking of just some random boy band song from the 90s when I heard Broken Wings. But mm. I think I know. Okay, what it's, dude, about. it's Duskmons. I know. I know what you're saying now. Huh. I'm so happy to have pushed it. Anyway, uh, anyone else have any thoughts about this fight? Or are all my critical uh, mode rants enough? Omlo was just kind of a brawl. Like he 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 he's big and running around quickly, so he's kind of I was kind of smashing against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I found. It's like on normal mode, you mostly just need to aggressively attack and do a DPS race, and you'll generally win if you use yeah. your single links. It I'm pretty sure it wouldn't take as much strategy as I had to deal with. After we win this fight, the scene cuts to the climax of the of the film where Frollo confronts Quasimodo on the balcony, violating the idea of sanctuary in order to get at Esmeralda. And, so, and, and we're basically we're re, we're doing the climax of the movie here. Like, um, yeah, he's wildly attacking with a sword. That's the city below is on fire. 
I swear mm-hmm. it's not our fault. <laughs> and like he, like they're they're climbing out on oil spouts on the on the uh, cathedral itself. Frollo stands on the gargoyle spout. Last madly raises a sword, screaming about how the wicked will be and, cast into the fiery pit. And he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit forever. And yeah, Karma can't let a line like that go. <laughs> well, he already um, chopped the gargoyle with the sword, so naturally it cracks under him. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, if I remember correctly as well, the he kind of has the vision of the gargoyle leering at him and threatening to consume him. Well, he, he, he falls, he, he falls and grabs it like with both hands. He's staring at it, and the face warps into this like this demonic grin with fire inside it. Yeah. And which which I guess is kind of ironic as well, because the entire idea of the gargoyles on cathedrals is that they're supposed to uh, scare off uh, sin, sin and sinners. So, well, the entire point is that they drain water because they're gutters. Yes. <laughs> well, that's true, but I learned that from no cat. <laughs> Technically grotesques are the ones that are just statues. But but yeah, but because like I said he literally has vision and it breaks with hit and he breaks and he falls like holding this massive stone pillar. So, you know, he's got plenty of things that kill him. Fire, the fall, being squished. Yep. Let's just say that he falls into hellfire and be done with it. <laughs> so, Ed, that means Amphibus ends up helping Quasi and Esmeralda and Sora's just kind of like, wait, was I needed here? <laughs> I kill the gargoyle thing. That's enough. <laughs> Should I kill the other gargoyle things? <laughs> it would be doing this world a favor. <laughs> yep. So, so back in. Yeah. Yeah. So, back so in the basically name. we have a post game or a post story moment with Quasimodo and Sora. Sora just hangs out with the comic relief gargoyles. Like Quasi says, my heart is free now. And then he looks at the relief in the back of the nave. And for some reason, it's got Xehanort's hair. Like the bald chrome dome? No, um. Not that Xehanort. An- not that, uh, Ansem. <laughs> it's got, like, got Ansem hair, right? Isn't it great that there's, we have to qualify so many of these already? Yeah, I know. Yeah, and as Sora goes to leave, Crypto Hoodie shows up. <laughs> so we want to do the scene. All that time, Quasimodo let himself be trapped inside the nightmares Frollo gave him. Hypocrite, you are the one who has made your heart a prison. You again? What are you talking about? And for moments, you actually see Vanius's face overlaid next to the other to the other youth's face. Even, Even if, if you, you are, are not, not the pris- prisoner. Huh? And then he vanishes into a corridor of darkness. My heart's a prison? And then we get the Chronicles entry for Birth by Sleep, which drives Port the home that he's saying Sora's heart is a prison for Ventus. Just be be, be clear what they're talking about here. <laughs> it's nope. just like imaginary Vanitas says, that's all we need is more of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, well, just to make sure that we know that yeah. we're not completely rid of Vanitas. And the Sora finishes up uh, sealing the sleeping keyhole with that, and he's yep. done with his side. Let's drop over to Riku's side. Uh, Riku's dive has him fighting an annoying boss fight, the Queen Buzzfly, which has you hit mm. targets to expose their weak point, and you need to just keep on dodging until you do. I do not like these fights. Remember that you can actually break, like slow down, which you need to because she does like screen attacking yeah. advice. So you have to kind of like you have to slow down that so you don't run into them. that one took me a few hits. This is one of the harder ones to get the A rank in. And yes, I had to get an A rank in every one of these things for reasons. Let's go on to Riku's story where he steps right into the story as Esmeralda is being chased by Phoebus as he's been commanded to do by Frollo. 
Esmeralda just disappears in a puff of smoke and then goes running right by Riku. Smoke bomb. Yep. It's more or less shot like that. Like Esmeralda disappears in a puff of smoke to Phoebus's eyes and then we just see her running by Riku. He's like, "Mm, okay, that's normal. I'm okay with this person appearing in a puff of smoke. I've seen that before. Yeah. So then Phoebus runs up to Riku and immediately asks, have you seen this offensive word? And Riku claims he hasn't, which makes me go, I have in my notes. Good job for not being a narc, Riku. (laughs) If you see something, no, you didn't. Yep. He even claims, I don't even know what that word is. Riku doesn't come from the Disney world based on a work of fiction that makes for the least Disney worlds. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Riku at least can pick up that this is like not a friendly word. And he's just like, I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. (laughs) He's like, clearly, I don't like this. I am not going to be assisting on this. He's figured out enough. He's like, I feel like the one person who's running away is probably the one I, I could help if anyone. This guy, no, not right yep. now. <laughs> so Phoebus yep. leaves and Esmeralda shows up to thank Riku and explains the trouble that all the room are in. It specifically comes on Frollo that she hates to know what kind of darkness drives that man. He's like, OK, now that I can get behind another standing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Riku instantly perks up to attention when he realizes, oh, OK, I see what I'm here for. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, I just need to find the the source of the darkness the, here. I think I, th- I think I can imagine what the darkness is. Tell me yep. more. <laughs> yep. Just when he hears the word darkness, his ears perk up. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, he's trying to do something good with it, of course. It's just oh, yeah. kind of uh, this really funny juxtaposition. So, yeah, Esmeralda sends Riku to the Cathedral of Notre Dame for answers. Oh, hey, it's right over there. That's convenient. It's not like Paris is a huge city. Nope. Totally normal it, to just be like, oh. I guess a dream watch you can do a thusly who arrive. You're not wrong. The DM's rushing you through the through the uh, travel. You didn't have any random encounters on your travel. There was just random encounters in front of the crazy church. Riku calls out to find anyone and finds a Quasimodo. I like that Riku is way better at staying chill than Sora because he doesn't even react to Quasimodo's unusual look. Mm-hmm. And even if you're not inherently that I mean person, they definitely draw Quasimodo in a way that he is... You're definitely I could see in any form of real life taking a moment to take in his unusual appearance, like with his like, he- like with the heavy set misshapen brow and eyes mm-hmm. and just his general form. Like, I like to imagine myself been able to keep chill, but like Riku just doesn't even miss a step. He's very calm. Also, Riku like gets to the heart of Quasimodo's uh, subplot here within one conversation with him. Yep. Uh, So, yeah, Quasi says that the Archdeacon isn't here. Archdeacon being a character that we do not see in this game, but is more or less the guy that's sort of the head of the church. Sort of not appearing in this game. Correct. In the the original book, the Archdeacon is Frollo. In this, the Archdeacon's another man who actually stopped Frollo from murdering a baby Quasimodo by throwing him off a roof. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Riku says he's just looking for a guy called Frollo. I don't truck with that church stuff, Riku says. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Quasi tells him that Frollo's at the edge of town and just sort of like explains what's up. Lamenting being a monster as well, which like he protects you from the outside world. It's like the world. He'll be cruel to me. Is that what Frollo told you? Trust me, looks to be deceiving. Like Riku's just going full bore on this. It's kind of great. And like, honestly, Riku has one of the best lines to demonstrate his character development overall in the scene. A good friend sees you for who you are, no matter what face you wear. Yeah. Look at like, Riku with that fancy character development. Yeah. <laughs> this game is just Riku showing off all his character development that he's collected over the past few games. <laughs> I mean, trust me, I've worn this one this one evil guy's face in three different ways, and I'm kind of tired of it, but it seems to be going okay. 
<laughs> How many times he's looked like Ansem Seeker of Darkness now? Good point. Yep. <laughs> so Riku tries to get Quasi to leave and then heads out on his own, wishing he could just take his own advice here. That's another really good line. It's just like Riku's leaving Quasimodo, just having given him good advice and just kind of saying, geez, I wish I could take my own advice. You know, it's it's just that's like very real to me. Like I'm like people come to me for advice. I'm like, this is all the things I want to say to myself. <laughs> yep. It's like, so you just be saying, I know I got a ways to go. Still could be another way oh, yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. Mm. Before we go, let's explore the nave a little because Riku has something here that Sora does not. In the back of the nave, we have our first possible encounter with Lord Kairu. I want to say right now, Lord Kairu is a funny name because Kairu is spelled K-Y-R-O-O, but it's directly a pun on the Japanese word for frog, Kairu. Yep. I have in my notes, a frog dream eater challenges me to a fight. Oh shit, I think it's a super boss. He's a night frog. Eventually he runs away though. Hmm. We'll have to come back to this. Ah, apparently this is Lord Kairu, a spirit you're supposed to chase from world to world. Cool. I find myself thinking of Final Fantasy VI, which had the uh, world map wandering boss death gaze, which would keep which would run away after a bit, will keep the amount of damage you inflicted on him. Yeah. And Lord Kairu works much the same way. Um, He bounces between worlds and also between character roots. uh, And if you defeat him, you'll get the recipe to make it one. But his fight is really frustrating because he now has a huge amount of health. He constantly spawns copies of himself and basically him and all his copies. Well, he doesn't copy summon copies of himself. He summons Chef Kairus and Sir Kairus. Fair enough. So in other words, more frogs wielding weapons. Yes. And him and I think a lot of his a lot of his minions, they inflict like they they speed up your your uh, your drop meter. Yeah. Um, getting hit by them will cause your drop gauge to have a big multiplier, which will make it so that you drop much faster if you're not careful. There's these items to fight against it. Yeah. You, you if you're going to fight this guy, bring a lot of uh, drop me knots. And also, I want to say, even if you get the recipe for Lord Kairu, the materials to actually make a Lord Kairu are harder to get than the recipe. We'll come back to that later. Yeah, this is really where I started feeling the I, I wanted to get all the monsters, but I really can't be bothered. Yeah, I will talk about that in the completion episode. <laughs> for me, it wasn't getting the monsters that I hated. It was leveling them. We'll talk about that, too. <laughs> In the completion episode. <laughs> oh, we have a lot. Here we have a lot to think about that mechanic. And frankly, I found them. They were useless as NPCs in fights because they were unreliable hitters and died all the time. Don, I swear Donald does better. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Uh, so Riku makes it out of town when a massive Dream Eater flies overhead. And it's a Dream Eater that, we ha- that will chase us not only over a bridge, but through the, what is it, kind of like a beat up part of town? I guess I would call it more maze of city buildings than that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's much more of a outskirts slum type part of town. Yeah, and like we still have to flee from it throughout this all. And I kind of realized at this point that I lean so much on once more and second chance in critical mode, and I really want to get them here. But unfortunately, due to the way you learn skills in this game, it was quite a while before I got those. I remember how when back in uh, Birth by Sleep, I could easily target it by just a little bit of planning oh, yeah. looking things up. It's, this, you just it, can't get stuff. Yeah, you have to like know which spirits you're going to make. And then you have to like grind those spirits to get those skills. It's tough. In Birth by Sleep, you could do a little bit of dedicated grindy and then just have all the powerful spells. But this is doling it out in a way more frustrating way. Yep. So when we get out of the outskirts, we find Phoebus guarding a windmill hut from Frollo. Frollo is convinced that the family is harboring Romani. Then the war girl shows up with Riku close behind. Just to sort of like drive the point home here. Phoebus asked what the demon is and Frollo was just like, 
It's righteous judgment. It's like, this is no demon, it is righteous judgment. I've been granted this power, so I may smite all now and forever. And so, yeah, Frollo has fallen too far to be reasoned with as far as Riku is yeah. concerned. He says there's almost no coming back. I feel like the time's there, and I'm not sure this guy's worth working on. It seems yeah. to be the unspoken parts. Yeah, I have in my notes, Frollo, fully high on the scent of his own darkness, declares himself righteous. If this weren't a goofy Kingdom Hearts level in a goofy Kingdom Hearts game, I'd call this rather cutting satire of organized religion. Wait, if you're high in the scent of your own darkness, that mean you're sniffing your own? I'm not finishing that. <laughs> the funny thing about this particular version of Frollo is that apparently in the original novel, he was actually the archdeacon of the of the cathedral himself. And in this one, he's apparently a more secular uh, authority figure, a judge. I think he's literally called Paris's minister of, ju- of uh, justice or something. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's but, like they got a little nervous about making an explicit priest character look too evil. And so Disney kind of made a religion, a character who is religious, but not technically a religious authority. Yeah. Yep. I wouldn't be shocked if that was a choice. I could look it up, but I, mm. it seems like the sort of choice they'd make. Well, we get a flashback showing Frollo's obsession with stamping out the Romani city because he's a racist shit. He's he's literally just going on. It's like this is Paris at its darkest hour. So we got to go back to the cathedral to catch him. Uh, Riku's Riku's just like, I got to deal with this. Just stay behind. <laughs> back at the cathedral, Riku reaches the gates and finds Quasi holding a wounded Esmeralda. And he's like, oh, shit, where'd the nightmare go? I was saying, like, it looks they may have indicated it's it's upstairs. So Riku's running off. He he knows he's got his own fly. He's his own flying uh, pointless web asset to fight. Yep. So Riku runs through the nave. The comic relief gargoyles show up to make some jokes that are deeply inappropriate for the type of story this is and clear the way for Riku. So I guess they do show up here. <laughs> I find it funny that they're badass enough to actually fight some dream eaters. It's like that's unexpected. Can I just put this in your head very briefly? There for some reason, you know how there's always like knockoff movies and stuff when it's popular. Like mockbusters yeah. for like, but there's so like there's so many yeah, yeah. bootleg. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would not believe that some of the many hunchback bootleg movies actually have worse sidekicks than the gargoyles. Oh wow. Go into this a little. Explain this to me. There's one called Seeker of the Hunchback, where among other things, they literally drew their fellow character to look like uh Gaston and call him the High Sheriff, in which Esmeralda is followed by a bunch of talking instruments that never shut up. <laughs> what? What? And also, there's and also there's a bunch of bats that just keep keep doing stupid j- jive type. We're we're awesome things. Keeping in with the with the pattern, I would imagine that there's probably an, an absolutely psychotic Russian version of it. Well, do you count German version with dingo pictures? What? Have you ever seen the, the, you ever see those? Have you ever seen memes of horrible, badly drawn trace figures laughing? It's like it's 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 a, it's a German production that made the worst trace knockoffs possible. Oh no! It's actually even worse than I described. But it doesn't have it doesn't have nearly as good uh, bad com- comic relief sidekicks. It just is. It's just like literally. Not only that, it's literally they are clearly dubbed by th- by two or three people phonetically speaking English over a moving video with those second takes. Oh, geez. And there's a couple of people on YouTube I love who love to do those movies. So I know a lot of them and they're pretty fun to uh, rip on. Nice. 
But yeah, so at least we just have these at least we just have these gargoyles. I find this sad because when I think of gargoyles, I want the other Disney gargoyles, which were actually much better. Mm -hmm. I I still need to watch that show, but I understand that it's like one of the best things that Disney made and it was tragically cut short, right? Then they stole from the creator and made a terrible third season. Oof. Okay, yeah. yeah. So just watch the first season. Got it. Then the new DuckTales did a riff on it, which is just great. <laughs> I, I remember that Freakazoid did a joke about it with the Lawn Gnome segment. Oh, God, I forgot that shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are Lawn Gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go. We've, we've uh, gotten way off uh, Way here. off things. So yeah, let's get the fight a monster. Yeah, up on the roof, Frollo is doing a sickos.jpg about burning Paris. I think we've done this joke already many times, so let's just like not get into it again. I mean, he is just he is just flat doing it. It's without now, would you say he is an ancestral sicko? He is the ancestral sicko. Yes, I'm just glad that we have a new sickos. Anyway, <laughs> up on the roof, uh, we're back on the roof. Riku is not impressed with Frollo, and nope. Frollo six the uh, war girl NFT on Riku. And that causes Riku to do, and no, Frollo's the one who does a cool backflip into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> kind of amazing. He's very spry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but before we can actually fight that bat, though, and some Seeker of yeah. Darkness and Crypto Hoodie show up. Because why not? And try and get Riku to embrace the darkness, and I get to sit this one out. <laughs> <laughs> You're handsome. Why are you here? Your best friend is never far. So sad. The cost of yielding to the darkness. You could write a book about that. But I embraced the darkness. And unless you hurry up and do the same, your story will end just like his. I walk the road to dawn. Still afraid of the darkness, I see. A corridor of darkness appears behind them, and Ansem tosses the sword away as the cloaked man enters the portal. Wait! And the belief... He thinks I'm afraid of the dark. No, not while I have the keyblade. It will guide me to the light. <laughs> We're going to fight time. I actually so, kind of like that scene, though, just because it's, uh, you know, Ansem Seeker of Darkness taunting Riku again. I, I don't know. I It's always good. It's always a good time whenever that happens. <laughs> I, I just love the, the banter between the two of them. So, yeah, I have on my notes. Uh, once again, I say to thee, fuck Wargoyle. <laughs> At least this one's flying, right? Oh, so you fight this Wargoyle over the burning city, and he almost never goes near your spirits, which makes it difficult to build up Link. Uh, so the way we build up Link is your spirits have to be attacking at the same time you are. It's really hard when they aren't close. Oof. On the other hand, he has lower defense than his Landron brother in the Sora dimension. So it's a, I feel like it was a bit of an easier fight overall. And Riku gets to make use of the reality shift because he's flying way out over the uh, the edge of the 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 balcony. So, yeah. yeah, because this one is not attacking constantly, it's less aggressive and therefore it doesn't it, it doesn't have as much chance of killing you because it doesn't attack for that long. It feels more like a Kingdom Hearts boss fight rather than an Elden Ring boss fight, which is what Sora feels like he has all the time on critical mode. At the end of the fight, the Wargoyle falls down the tower in front of the cathedral, wings falling off. This matches almost exactly how the thing appears in front of Sora on his route. Yeah, well, here's where I was saying how the story of the drops make me a little bit mad because it really gives this feeling that for a while they wanted the drops to be interweaving. 
they're really strongly suggesting the dreamers float between worlds. And like this one was knocked out of this world. He falls down cathedral and lands in Sora's roots and then fights him and then fights him more. I, I do feel like the dream eaters do exist in, in both dimensions at once, like, or that they float in and out. They don't use it that much. Except for the one called Spellkin later. They never seem to mention it. It's like the board ape two. It kind of felt like it was going through different stages, fighting them at different times. But the story doesn't want to add to that, so it just has its moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish they were. I, it'd be kind of cool if they were applying that while the humans were stuck in one world, the monsters were traveling between them. It could really make things more interconnected and surreal. But it's just not using it. I feel like that might be a consequence of uh, how the gameplay is being set up. Uh, it's trying to make tell a story in this interesting, disconnected way through the drop system, but unfortunately it doesn't feel all that connected because of how much is just sort of left to the imagination like this. Yeah. I kind of feel like they were trying to be less explicit about that part because they want to be cagey about the nature of these worlds that Sora and Riku are going through, but it ends up being just a little bit, I I guess they could have spelled out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So after the fight, quasi thanks Riku for his help, getting him to see the walls of his own heart. Riku does his sto- a good heroic fist clench against the side. The fist pump, yes. Well, well no, really, no, the clench, like the, the, the tightening and the, the tightening the hand into uh, fists. You know, the like it's, like, this was personal experience. Endwalker yeah. fist bringer. The Endwalker uh fist clench, the Arthur from the kids cartoon Arthur fist clench, that thing. <laughs> gotcha. Uh Riku thinks about the look that Ansem Seeker of Darkness gave before he left. Yeah. <laughs> I was inside you once. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't resist. No. Luckily, the the religious figure is gone. Yeah. Yeah. That does seem like the sort of thing Ansem Seeker of Darkness would say. Speaking of one religious figure we ignored, we didn't even talk about our resident cult leader in in Zemnis earlier. Well, he hasn't (laughs) showed up in this episode, thank goodness. Well, I'm just saying in terms of people sore and or Riku and Mets in that sense. Salad. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I said he, Seeker Darkness does seem like he does like to put people off balance. Yeah, he, he likes to push buttons. So both Sora and Riku got the Guardian Bell Keyblade after finishing their story here. The Guardian Bell is a cool looking Keyblade I found. Like, how would you describe it? It is like uh, it looks like a church this, bell. It looks like a church with bells on it as a Keyblade, if that makes sense. Basically, it looks like you got like the keychains of bell. It leads the the arm guard kind of has the look of like the frame of a stained glass window. It goes to a pair of pillars that goes into what kind of looks like their stained glass face. And then there's this gargoyle in, in profile holding a bell from its mouth as the blade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's That's cool. actually pretty cool like, for that. Yeah, it, I feel like it was a pretty good keyblade, too. It was a strong magic one, I think. Yeah, I think it was long. I think it was longer range and boosts both stats somewhat. Mm-hmm. So it was magic greater. After we seal both sleeping keyholes, we get a scene with Roxas and Axel. Which seems oddly disconnected, but. Well, we're going to get a lot of these. We get one of these scenes at the end of completing every world. Mm-hmm. So. Hey, Axel, you haven't forgotten. And Swerve mentioned, of course, they're on the clock tower. Eating sea salt ice cream, of course. <laughs> hmm. What? You made us a promise. I did. That you'd always be there. Bring us back. Yeah. Got it memorized. Best friends forever. Then he wakes up in another world. 
Oh. Where? What happened to me? Roxas? He sees himself in the mirror. That's me. And others, there's others on the ground getting up as he's... Dylan, Alice, Evan, Ienzo. We're people again. But only the ones who joined the organization here. I guess Xehanort doesn't count, but where are Bragg and Isa? Like, we wrote it down in our script. I read it as even Ienzo because screw Evan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing at the whole thing about about, uh, you know, like nobody's don't have any feelings when the entire story of uh, story arc of Axel is having a bad breakup with Syx. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I immediately go back to the I I someone else put it in my head like we were looking at Twitter, but someone put it had it's it's a future on bit as a robot. We don't have emotions. And that makes me sad. <laughs> but so we've talked uh, about this at length. I'm happy talking about it, but I think that's all I would need to touch on right now. Like, um, what I feel like what these this scene and uh, other scenes that are going to be like it in this game are doing is they're part of the setup for Kingdom Hearts three. They are uh, moving the characters into their new positions for where they're going to be for the next time they really have a big role in the story. And much like last time, we get we get one of these non-store and Riku scenes every time a world is completed on both paths. Yeah. Yep. And so clearly this is more in the present time after the events of. uh, Well, I mean, coded in Kingdom Hearts 2 and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's not clear how much time has passed from two here, but um, it's definitely just telling us, hey, pay attention here. This is. All these characters are coming back and they're going to do more stuff. Yep. I, so we, I, got, my, I read I read in the report from code. Apparently it mentions that at the end with that uh, with the end Sid. Yeah, mm-hmm. we got at, we got the whole thing where, OK, so Xehanort is going to be coming back because we destroyed his nobody and his and his heartless. Yep. So therefore, the full person is going to be reformed. So it looks like now we're getting this idea that, OK, this doesn't just apply to Xehanort. It actually applies to all of the nobodies from Organization 13. So I do have a question of, did we defeat their Heartlesses at any point or their Heartlesses already destroyed beforehand? I just assume they weren't particularly significant Heartless. So something happened okay. sooner or later. And we yeah, destroyed a lot of Heartless. That's my particular interpretation as well. Sure. Makes sense to me. We get a Chronicle entry for 358 days over two. Basically, sad things happen. Like they give us chronicle entries whenever the scene that we just had relates directly to a thing that happened in a previous Kingdom Hearts game. Yeah, because this scene was talking about the friendship between Axel and Roxas. So they have to give us the 350 to eight days over two journal. Yep. So next week we are going to go back to Tron. And why does everything look different and weirdly CGI de-aged? Well, the muse has gotten nice and techno. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a strange world, honestly. I think I like the original Tron area better, but I also like the original Tron movie better than Tron Legacy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I guess we've just said where we're going next week. I don't think we have anything else to say for this one. Uh, until next time, I'm John. I'm Jared. And I'm Matt. And remember, a good story is best enjoyed with friends. Thank you for listening to Backlog Dialogues. If you're enjoying our deep dives and discussions, be sure to leave a five-star review on the podcatcher of your choice. If you're really enjoying our deep dives and discussions, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash backlogdialogues. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find our archives at backlogdialogues.com. 
special thanks to Eli for our theme song. Kingdom Hearts and all associated trademarks are the property of Disney and Square Enix. Please support the official release. Yep. yep. Um, but Let's like, I want to say like, pity. <laughs> Please don't sing. Not right now. <laughs> no. Wait, I think we we were guiding in the notes, and it should be guarding. Correct. <laughs> he's guiding the windmill. Guiding the windmill. No. Yeah, he's uh, guarding a windmill from Troll. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, guide guarding it. No. no. By the uh, way, guys, I just want to finish inflicting you. I'm sending an image. This oh, is me finishing inflicting on you. Fine, I will look at it, even though we're in the middle of recording. Wow. That is... Wow. <laughs> so what Jared has just sent us, dear listener, is a picture of the talking instruments from that uh, hunchback version that he told us about. And so let me talk about each one of these here. We have a violin. With... Let me turn my microphone a bit. It might be okay. So we have a violin, a tambourine with it looks to have bifocal glasses. Yes, it is the grumpy old voice guy. And a we have a pair of chimes and a pair of yeah, castanets and a pair of castanets that look like little duck heads, more or less, and <laughs> and a and a pink accordion that looks kind of. I, I don't know what the right word I want to look for here is. I want to say nebbish, because it kind of looks like it's going to be the Jewish stereotype character. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And it has a face on the side of one of its... Uh, this is definitely going into antidotes to keep. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. By the way, you notice the violence bow also has a face. Oh, no. Oh, God, it does. Oh, what? <laughs> I didn't see that. There's also, there's also, a, string of bell, there's also a string of bells that don't appear in this image. So, well, I'm happy to have inflicted horribleness with. <laughs> so anyway, I know that was uh, ridiculous, but go on. 